Welcome to Herb W. Morgan's Slaying Bulls and Bears, a podcast about economics, markets, investing, politics, and profit. Every Monday, in less than 20 minutes, Wall Street portfolio manager Herb W. Morgan distills the complex and complicated into the simple and sensical. Here's Herb now. Good morning. It's Monday, March 7th, 2022. I'm Herb Morgan, Senior Managing Director, Chief Investment Officer here at EMA, Efficient Market Advisors. We are a business of Cantor Fitzgerald Investment Advisors. This is my weekly economic and market commentary. Uh, don't forget, you can follow me intra-week on LinkedIn, Herb Morgan, or Twitter at ETF underscore strategist.com. This is available as a free subscription that comes with the slide deck and the narration, or as a free podcast on any of the podcast formats. The name of the podcast is Slaying Bulls and Bears, making the complicated, uh, complex and complicated, simple and sensical. Uh, everything you're about to see and or hear is designed for use with both investors and financial advisors. Nothing contained herein is investment advice, should not be treated as such. No recommendations are being made for the purchase or sale of any security. Everything is for informational purposes only. Accuracy, adequacy, or completeness cannot be guaranteed. Well, on ongoing political tensions, and a little bit still of concern over what the Fed might do on March 16th, which is now next week, markets continued to sell off. International markets particularly hit last week. U.S. was uh, the cleanest dirty shirt. You know, you see red, red, red across the board, but the S&P was only down one and a quarter percent on the week. Just goes to show you how sort of strong the U.S. is uh, relative to the rest of the world in times of crises. It's a flight to quality play. The uh, interest rates were down. The flight to quality sent the aggregate bond index up almost 1%. In sympathy with equities, high yield down, but only about a quarter percent. If, you, know, you would think if there were a recession on the horizon, we'd see high yield credit spreads widen out. That is not the case at the moment. Uh, moving along, let's get into the economic data. And then of course, we'll wind up with some graphs and charts on uh, what's happening with the Russia-Ukraine crisis and uh, thanks for those who pointed out last week that I referred to uh, Boris Johnston as Boris Yeltsin in a slip of the tongue. That was interesting. But anyway, uh, let's start with the Chicago PMI. Chicago PMI fell from 65 to 56. That was below expectations. That's still expansion. That's pretty sizable expansion. 50 is the line of delineation. New orders in production fell, inventories rose in maybe some sign, uh, not of economic weakness, but of, uh, of a um, improvement in supply chain, although this is just a regional indicator. And employment still very weak in the Chicago region. The national market manufacturing PMI, a uh, much broader measure, uh, rose to 57.3, pretty much in line with the 57.5 expectation. 50, again, the line of delineation, anything over 55, strong growth, 57 obviously qualifies. The ISM, which is a similar, measures a similar thing, slightly different statistical methodology from a different company, their manufacturing PMI 
rose to 58.6, extremely good. New orders up to almost 62, production improved. However, backlogs increased here, suggesting that the, the aforementioned improvement in supply chain was not happening. Inventories were higher, so that's good, but they're higher from a very, very, very low level. And employment still above 50, strong, not as strong, of course, as we'd like it. Although later in the week, we got the employment reports, which we'll get to momentarily. Now, manufacturing is only about 15% of the U.S. economy. Services is more of 85% of the U.S. economy. And here, the market PMI rose from 51.2 the prior month. That was, you know, Omicron-related shutdowns or just voluntary stay-at-homes related to uh, concerns about virus spreading to sort of the waning of those concerns of the virus and a big shot up to 56.5, pretty much in line with the 56.7 estimate. However, the ISM reading was down, but still high. Uh, fell from 59.9 to 56.5, well below the expectations, but still a very, very good reading expansion in the services sector. New orders were down a little bit, business activity down, but again, they were down from a pace, not down an absolute level. Uh, employment, though, was down, came in at 48.5. That contradicts the two employment reports I'll show you momentarily from both ADP and the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Construction spending, nice gain there, very sizable gain, 1.3% uh, in the month of January after a nice 0.8% gain um, in December. You can see the red, the year-over-year -year gain there, uh, moderate single digits, which is uh, a good, solid, strong reading. Auto sales, which had shot up big the prior month, still well below where they would be. The automobile industry is still suffering from parts shortages, logistics, supply chain, but improving. Uh, however, here this month in February, Ward's total vehicle sales number fell from a 15 million annualized rate, which is still below about the 17 million, which I would call about equilibrium, fell to 14 and was below expectations. So below the worst months here of the supply chain crisis, but, but also are above the worst of the supply chain crisis, but below where we would be in a normally functioning environment. Now, last week was the first week of the month. So we got the ISMs, we get the, mark, we get the services from, from, and the manufacturing from ISM and Marquette, but we also get the jobs reports. And the Fed's decision on interest rates is based on two things, inflation and employment. We know inflation is above their target, and we know employment used to be below their target. Now it is, that is no longer an issue, which virtually assures rate hikes, whether it's 25 or 50. I was thinking 50 until I heard Chairman Powell speak uh, last week, and he took 50 off the table and said he firmly supports 25, so it's going to be 25. Let's talk about employment. Uh, weekly initial claims for unemployment uh, rose, or excuse me, declined to 215,000. They were below expectations. That's a very low number for an economy with 335 million people and approximately 165 million person labor force. Continuing claims relatively unchanged at a pretty low level. We have a strong and healthy economy, a strong and healthy jobs market. Factory orders gained 1.4%. You look back from here 
to the left, you can see that factory orders is usually a volatile series. Big things like aircraft can skew it up, and then you have a big down month the following month. Big down months here related to the COVID shutdowns. But what's interesting is we haven't had down months for about two years. This is another one of those indicators that when you, if you think about it, is pretty remarkable. The strength of the U.S. economy, I continue to say, is, is better, is greater than generally viewed. We generally are fed news. News tends to be negative. Uh, it sells more, I guess. But our economy is just incredibly powerfully strong and resilient at the moment. Take a look at the ADP jobs report here. Private payrolls grew by 475,000. That was 100,000 more than expected. Okay, that's a great number. But think about this. <laughs> January, remember we had that outlier report and ADP said we lost 300,000? They changed their mind. We didn't lose 300. We actually gained 500. That is an 800,000 jobs delta. Just goes to show you no report, no statistical model is perfect. They're all subject to revision. We thought at the time it was going to be revised. I didn't know how much it was going to be revised. So now you get the 800,000 delta from January, add it to the almost 500,000 for February, and you're talking about 1.3 million job delta on a month over month basis, according to this one report. That is a remarkably strong labor market. We are definitely at full employment and the Fed needs to act now to take care of the inflation problem. However, the Fed is also aware of geopolitical events happening in the Ukraine. The, the Bureau of Labor Statistics jobs report, which attempts to measure the same thing as the ADP report, said we added 700,000 jobs on top of the almost 500,000 in January. Again, about 1.3 million on a month, on a two, on this case, on a two month basis. Unemployment is now down to 3.8%. Participation rose a little to 62.3%. Those are all numbers that are getting better and uh, pretty clearly a very, very tight labor market. We've talked about it ad nauseum for several months now. So let's get into the fact that the reality is, as good as the economy is, as great as earnings were, as strong as labor market is, as strong as GDP reports are, as low as interest rates are, the market's gone down. We know that. The S&P is down about 11% currently from its all-time high. We're going to talk about that in the middle in a minute. Why is this happening? It's happening because of a dire financial crisis in Russia. Now, I don't mean to, uh, I don't mean to suggest that the humanitarian crisis is, is not paramount. It is. Russia has invaded its neighbor, the Ukraine. But what's happened is that the Western allies, led by, of course, the United States, have taken very strong economic sanction measures against Russia. To put this in perspective, uh, this is a graph of the ruble, inverted, of course, because uh, that means it's going, it costs, you can see here, roughly 150 ruble to a dollar, where back in 2000, it was, you know, 25 or 30 ruble to a dollar. This is a severe devaluation of its currency. Um, it's down 30% just recently, just getting crushed. Um, many, many, many markets are cutting off 
anything denominated in rubles, and this will significantly hinder uh, Vladimir Putin's ability to wage war. What's happening in their stock market? This is the stock market in rubles. Now in dollars, it's, it's down a mere 50%, so for a US investor, but if you're a Russian citizen, if you're a Russian company, if you're a Russian oligarch, if you're a Russian pension plan, whatever, you have a tie to the Russian stock market in any way, in rubles, you are down 70% since October. So people say, well, you know, Vladimir Putin's very smart. He's thought of the contingencies. I always thought he was very smart too. This shows that either he doesn't care or he gravely miscalculated the consequences of his actions. The Russian stock market is down 70%. Russian stocks that traded on the United States exchanges as ADRs, American Depository Receipts, can no longer do so. Even Russian uh, markets themselves domestically are largely closed. Those shares that trade in places like London, largely not available. Uh, even US listed exchange traded funds, index funds that owned Russian stocks are no longer trading. Uh, they may again when this is resolved, but the, all of this really hurts uh, Russia and it seems to be at least a miscalculation on the economic side. They probably properly calculated the military side that the NATO and the US will not get involved. But a stock market down 70% is debilitating to a country's economy. Uh, this graph shows the yields on Russian debt. That means the bonds are selling off the same way the stocks are. When bonds sell off, yields go higher. So sovereign US dollar denominated bonds are yielding 40% plus if they even pay the interest payments. So this is the market dumping these bonds that were in the 5% range, you know, five, for the better part of 15, 20 years, and then go to 40% yield overnight. This effectively shuts out the Russian government from accessing the world's capital markets and borrowing money to finance their war of terror on the Ukraine. Another way of looking at the same thing is it, what would it cost to insure Russian debt? If you owned Russian debt and you wanted to insure it against default, you went from 200 basis points here, you know, so 2% to insure it back here at the beginning of the year to about 16 or 18% to, to do that. So this is of course, good news for the good guys and gals of the Western world. And we hope uh, that this continues in this direction. So the, the bottom line is many of you are calling me and saying, well, what do I do about the fact that my portfolio in the US is down? Um, and it is, uh, you're, 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 the equity markets are down a little bit, the bond markets are, are actually down and then up and then down and then up, but really it's the equity markets driving portfolios. And of course we own some international uh, ETFs, a developed international ETF. We own an emerging markets ETF. We actually own two emerging markets ETF. We are underweight Russia. Russia does uh, represent a small weight in the emerging markets index. We are underweight Russia, but we have some very de minimis exposure in there. But what's happened is it's taken the PE multiple on the S&P 500, S&P 500 PE multiple. Let's go with, uh, you know, here, 
beginning of the year, around 22, 23 times earnings, down to about 19 times. Now, this is estimated earnings, estimated earnings for the year. Now, the question is, will the earnings come in above or below the estimate? If they come in below, then this PE is actually higher. If they come in above, then this PE is actually lower, and we'll look back on it as a buying opportunity. I, for one, kind of believe that in the end, the way this plays out is that the West wins. Uh, I think uh, it, the capital markets are certainly showing that with the only very modest uh, decline in our markets relative to things that are happening, obviously, in Russia. Here's another graph worth taking a look at. This is what I call the Fed model. The green represents the yield on the 10-year U.S. Treasury or the risk-free yield. When the yield on the U.S. Treasury is below the earnings yield of the S&P 500, which is also the P.E. ratio inverted, earnings divided by price, earnings of a company divided by the price, the earnings yield of the S&P, and this is not on expected earnings, this is on current, is about 4.6%. Your risk-free yield is about 1.7 or 1.8%. The gap between the two, I call, we call, the equity risk premium. The equity risk premium is wide, therefore it makes sense to own U.S. equities. Unless you believe there will not be a positive resolution ever on this situation. One thing about geopolitical events, they tend to impact the market quickly, abruptly, and they tend to be short-lived, which I'll show you in a little bit. So, we think in the end, for those that are patient long-term investors, this represents an opportunity, if you have spare cash, to consider, based on your own circumstances, adding to your equity positions. Okay, but why? Why is this happening? Why? Well, markets always discount uncertainty. Geopolitical events, as I said, tend to have a sharp and sudden impact on markets. And in addition to the Ukraine-Russia deal, we've got a Fed policy shift. We've got a Fed that has had held for about two years interest rates near zero. They are going to raise interest rates on March 16th and begin a cycle towards normalization. Notice I did not say tightening. Uh, it's less loose and a move towards normalization. They could get to a policy of tightening because inflation has gotten out of control. Uh, and if that happens, that's a different story. There is a real risk of that. If there's a real risk of persistent inflation, it's exacerbated now by the energy issues we have if uh, Russia is cut out of the world supply. I think most folks believe they should be, and the consequences to all of us will be higher energy prices temporarily. But the U.S., of course, was uh, a net exporter of petroleum as recently as a couple of years ago. It could get back there quickly. There are some domestic political considerations for us to get there. Um, but all of this says with geopolitical risk, the market decided to take a breather, re-rate itself, and go down about 11% from its one-day all-time high. But geopolitical events historically have uh, created buying opportunities. So this is a list of the geopolitical crises going back to World War II, Germany invade France, Pearl Harbor getting attacked directly, all of these different ones all the way back to uh, up to 2014 when Russia invaded Crimea. Where were we a year later? Well, 
83% of the time, the market was higher. On average, if you want the mean, 12%, arithmetic average or the median, those equal numbers above and below, about 15%. So uh, yeah, there you go. There's the data source there from Reuters and Glenview Trust. And where are we so far? Well, we're about where the market was in June of last year. Not all that bad, considering what's going on in the world. From the peak to where we are today, 11. From the trough, which was just a couple of weeks ago, down about 12.5%. Not yet a bear market, mere correction. This correction, in my view, was due and could have occurred even without the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which to me is a testament to the strength, the underlying strength currently of the U.S. economy. Okay, moving to data this week, consumer credit at the end of the day today, looking for about 24 billion. Uh, trade deficit Tuesday, job openings or jolts on Wednesday. Really, the only thing that matters this week, is, or really twofold. Number one, developments in Russia, Ukraine. A positive development could, sh could shoot the market higher. A negative market development could shoot the market lower. None of us have the ability to predict those. The other thing that matters more than anything this week is the CPI report for February, the last inflation report before the Fed meeting next week and their decision on the 16th. Consumer sentiment as well. Thanks everybody for tuning in. I always appreciate it. I'll be back to you again next week. Thank you for listening to Slaying Bulls and Bears. If you'd like to download the slides for this week's podcast, go to www.efficient-portfolios.com and join our mailing list. Don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel, rate us online, and share with a friend if you found this helpful. See you next week.